0: Or no, anything more than this comes from evil. Well, the title of this morning's sermon is Honest to God. Honest to God. I wonder how you felt seeing that title or now hearing it. This is a phrase that uh, people in our culture use with some frequency whenever someone doubts their honesty. If anyone doubts you, you just wheel out, no, honest to God. And then people know you are being serious. The variations of this phrase include, I swear to God, or cross my heart, which I think is, comes from a Catholic practice, or God do to me and more also. Don't ever use that one? No, that's actually from the Old Testament. <laughs> but we also, yeah, usually. But we also have our own variations of what Jesus is referring to in our passage this morning. You know, some, for example, will swear on their mother or father's grave. Or if you're a Princess Bride fan, I swear on the soul of my father, Domingo Montoya. He will make it to the top. Glenn told me about a recent scandal involving former Australian cricket captain Michael Clark, who was accused of cheating by his partner uh, while they were arguing in a family park. And in order to swear his innocence, he invoked his own daughter's life. Yeah, that's, that's that's the response. As one journalist commentating on that debacle said, you don't pull out that card and use that card unless... It is really true. You don't pull out that card unless it is really true. It says something about what we believe that this is considered to be the peak of swearing, an oath that you are telling the truth. And yet so flippantly, we would say, I swear to God. Do Christians have this card? Can we swear on anything, let alone God? Now, I think for most Christians in our day, we take Jesus' words seriously in this passage, and we wouldn't swear to God. For most Christians in the last few decades, they would have been taught myself included, that these verses mean a Christian should never go as far as even simply saying, I swear, or even, I promise, even if it doesn't have the name of God. But as we've seen all the way along in these last couple of weeks, Jesus is not just replacing the rules of the scribes and Pharisees with another set of rules that now they need to abide by, that now his disciples need to make sure they follow. No, Jesus is getting at the heart of the matter. For us to just read this passage and say, okay, I get it, Jesus. I need to make sure that I don't take any oaths. That's easy. I already do that. Next. Well, firstly, it's a bit more complicated than that. And secondly, that would be the way the Pharisees approach this text. And that's the very thing that Jesus is picking apart. No, I think the question that we should be asking as we meditate on this passage is, how much do we love the truth? How much do we love the truth? Does our love for it move and motivate our words and our actions? If so, how? How? We're going to consider two questions and a statement this morning as we work our way through this passage. Firstly, what is an oath? Secondly, can we take an oath at all as Christians? And thirdly, being honest to God. Well, let's dive in with our first question. What is an oath? What is an oath? Now, oath isn't exactly a word that we use very often these days, Uh, so infrequent perhaps That my voice dictation software, as I was writing this, struggled to pick it up. It kept hearing both, or earth, or oats. Now, kids, I know this is a tricky question, but do any of you know what an oath is? A promise. That's right. A promise. And it is a, a promise, but it actually has some extra elements, And so in the Bible, to swear an oath meant to call God as a witness that what you are saying is true. Now, it could be in reference to something you've said, whether it's a fact or whether it's an account of something that has occurred. Or it could be to call God as witness for something that you promise to do, something that you promise to somebody else. In the Bible, to swear an oath is solemn and is meant to be reserved for serious and significant circumstances. That's that's why the examples that we read in the Old Testament are all very serious things. And that's because God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and He does not lie. He is perfect in His truth-telling. Even if nobody else knew whether you were telling the truth or not, he always knows. Now, kids, can anyone tell me what the ninth commandment is? We were encouraged a few weeks ago to try and learn them. Has anybody learned what the ninth, ninth commandment is? No? Yeah? Do not lie. Good job. If you want to remember that, you just hold up nine fingers and you say, Five is not four. Do not lie. All right. Do not bear false witness is how the Old Testament puts that. And God commands it because it's part of His character. We know that God hates lies. We know that He is the very opposite of Satan, who is the father of lies. And so to call God as your witness to the truthfulness of what you are saying is inviting His wrath and judgment if what you are saying is untrue. That's how it was used in the Old Testament. Hence the phrase, God do so to me and more also if I do not. Now, in the Bible, there's also a difference between vows and oaths. As uh, as I just said, an oath is calling upon God to be a witness of something that you said or a promise that you've made to another person. A vow, on the other hand, is a promise that you make to God that you will do something. And we see this distinction between oaths and vows in Numbers chapter 30 verses 1 to 2. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Do you hear that? Whether it's an oath or a vow... You must follow through on what you have said. Oaths were commitments made to other people and calling God as witness. Vows were promises made to the Lord. And as we've just said, a person must do everything they say. And that brings us to our passage this morning. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. To swear falsely means to tell a lie under an oath. The legal term we use for that is perjury, or in verb form, to perjure yourself, is to be under oath and to be lying about whatever it is you are making an oath about. And you notice the second half of what Jesus says, he's describing either an oath that you've sworn to others or a vow that you've made to the Lord. Either way, you should do what you have sworn, consistent with Numbers 30. Now, even though we've long forgotten it, this is what phrases like honest to God or I swear to God are supposed to mean. But we don't use them that way anymore. And not only do people who say those things not mean them that way, those of us listening, actually we don't usually take them that way either when people say that, right? When you hear somebody say that, do you honestly think they are making an oath before the Lord? No. And if somebody has the reputation of not being a very honest person, then it doesn't matter what oaths they might use to convince us that they're telling the truth, Even the card Michael Clark pulled wasn't enough to convince listeners that he's telling the truth because it seems he's developed a reputation for dishonesty. Surely you can think of friends and people who flippantly use these oaths, but whose testimony is extremely unreliable. The oath doesn't suddenly make them more honest, does it? And that's part. Of, no, sorry, that's at the heart of the problem that Jesus is addressing in our passage. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, Jesus introduced the section on murder and anger with this same phrase, to those of old. It's Jesus, uh, it's his way of saying that this is what the Old Testament scriptures taught. And his quote here at first looks a lot like Leviticus 19, 12, you shall not swear by my name falsely. But as you can see, the second half of that does not map onto what Jesus says. The second half uh, is not actually found anywhere exactly in the Old Testament. But as we've seen uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, quotations didn't have to be direct quotations when used in Jesus' day. And so Jesus here is summarizing an aspect of Old Testament law, which is seen in a number of places. Numbers 30, which I quoted before, is a good example of where that is seen. Another good example is Deuteronomy 23:21, And that set of verses is a good one to, to read and, and meditate on. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you. Now, there are many of these examples in the Old Testament, and God never actually says in those examples that it is wrong to do so. He simply says, when you make an oath or when you make a vow, you must follow through. So overall, the Old Testament doesn't view oaths or vows as bad things. After all, God himself, not infrequently, again, as we read earlier, makes vows and oaths. And perhaps the most well-known is in Genesis chapter 22, verse 16, which is also picked up by the author of the Hebrews in Hebrews 6, 13. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. And of course, as Hebrews points out, because there is no one greater than God to swear an oath by, there is no other thing in all of creation in the universe that is perfect in its truthfulness and honesty and purity and perfection. Then God swears an oath by his own name. And that means that when God makes a promise, when he says something, it is unshakable. It is more reliable than anything else that's reliable. More faithful than old faithful. So what's Jesus getting at then? As we saw last week, the problem was that the scribes and Pharisees were again doing everything that they could to draw boundaries that you know technically didn't cross the line of God's law, but missed the whole heart and point of the law. And they were doing so so that they could create a bit of a cushion to say, "Hey, we can keep mucking around in here, and even though you know it might be sinful, it's okay. We're not crossing the line." That's what they were doing. And here is how this one came about. God clearly says in Deuteronomy 6.13, it is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. As we've seen, this was a serious, solemn thing. You don't want to be swearing by the Lord's name if you know that you're going to say something which is at best a bit iffy and at worst a lie. Otherwise, you'd be inviting judgment. So what happened was that many teachers of the law began to develop rules about whether an oath was binding or not, depending on how close to the name of God it was. I mentioned to you the Mishnah last week, which is a third century collection of Jewish oral teachings that had been passed down. Well, here is a snippet from the Nedarim, I'm sure I pronounced that incorrectly, tractate in the Mishnah. The nezarim is thousands of words dedicated entirely to making vows, entirely to justifying this practice. Here is a snippet. Rabbi Yehuda say, one who says that an item shall be considered Jerusalem instead of saying that it shall be considered like Jerusalem has not said anything. And then there's this from the Shavuot tractate, which is, Uh, concerned with oath-taking. Again, thousands of words all about that. If one administered the oath to the witness in the name of heaven and in the name of earth, these witnesses are exempt from liability for taking a false oath of testimony, as that is not an oath in the name of God." These these tractates are pages and pages of these kinds of qualifications to do with oaths and vows. Now choose those two examples because they are relevant to what Jesus says. And we don't just see examples of this here. There's another example later on in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 23. It's worth checking out that whole passage sometime today where Jesus says to the Pharisees, Woe to you blind guides! Who say, "If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Do you see what they're doing? You see what the scribes and Pharisees are doing with, with this whole principle of oath-taking and making vows? They're saying depending on how you involve Jerusalem in your vow, well, it could mean something or it could mean absolutely nothing. He's saying depending on what you take your oath on, you might be exempt from that oath because, you know, you're a few degrees away from the Lord's name. But if you're closer, then, well, you, you better make sure you're telling the truth. You only pull out that card when it is true. You know those exercises that you have in kids' activity books where you've got a list of words on one side and a list of words on the other side? Kids, you know, you know what I'm talking about? And then you've got to match them with a line? Yeah? You know what I'm talking about? I picture... The scribes and the Pharisees having a list of circumstances where you might take an oath on one side and then a list of things you know, that you can make an oath on that you can swear by on the other side. And their task was always to match the right object of vow or oath with the right circumstance, just so that you don't you know, end up in hot water with God. Make sure you don't overcommit. And only reserve swearing on God's name if you really mean it. Or if you're absolutely sure that what you're saying is true. Don't pull that card unless it is really true. Brothers and sisters, that is wickedness. Because firstly, it completely undermines the whole point and purpose of oaths that God intended in the Old Testament. And secondly, because it doesn't value the truth the way God's people should. Before we get to the next question, consider this point for yourself. As mentioned, you probably don't swear or call God as witness to your words much these days. As far as I know of all of you, I don't think anybody ever says it. And praise God that it's become common enough in our culture, in our Christian culture, to grasp this much and to make it a habit. But even without the swearing, even without making the oath and the promise to God, are there levels and degrees of truthfulness that you apply depending on the circumstance? even though you might not be using those oaths or swearing on the gold of the temple or whatever, are there levels of truthfulness that you apply depending on the circumstance? We have what we call white lies. And we call them white lies because, you know, white is the color of purity. And so we figure if we call them white lies, then perhaps they're innocent lies. It's amazing how we can redefine our words to make ourselves feel better about our sin, it's like calling abortion women's health care, which makes it sound like it's positive. A white lie, friends, is still a lie. It doesn't make it any less a lie. You might have good intentions in, in, in saying a white lie. Why lie? You, like, you know, you might not want to hurt your friend's feelings when they ask you what you think about their new dress. Or you might feel like you're choosing between two bad outcomes, you know, and just a a slight bending of the truth while it will result in an outcome that's not nearly as bad. Or maybe you justify it because the outcome actually will be really good, much better than if you tell, you know, the truth. Josh, Josh sent me an article this week of a career coach naming the five lies that you should say in an interview in order to make sure you land your dream job. Are you willing to take that advice? Does the allure of the perfect job or some other great outcome justify bending the truth just a little bit? Or perhaps the stakes might be much higher. Perhaps your boss tells you that unless you lie for them, you won't have a job tomorrow morning. That's food on the table for your family. That's rent and necessary resources to live. Perhaps in your field, you might know that lying is part of the way people play the game, and so you accept it as just an aspect of being in your area of expertise. From the seemingly small circumstances of truth-telling to the most consequential What is your commitment to the truth? Now, I understand that some circumstances are going to be more complex, that sometimes being truthful but also wise may require not saying everything. Maybe the clearest example of this is when some people hid Jews during the Holocaust, and they had to answer the question about whether they were hiding Jews to the Gestapo. But whether the stakes are bruising someone's ego or whether they are life and death, the disciple of Christ sees truth as a non-negotiable. Perhaps one way of thinking about this is, what if everything you said was under an oath that called God as a witness? Could you stand before God with a clear conscience. That's one thing to consider this as a hypothetical. But what Jesus says next forces us to consider even more seriously whether we should be taking oaths at all. That brings us to our second question. Can we take an oath at all? Kids, I'm sure uh, you have different pretend games that you play, right? Like, Houses, anyone play that one? Shops, Uh, any others? Can you give me some examples of games you play, pretend games? School, I told my kids that our kids play school and they were like, no we don't. Uh, Emmy, which one? Pretend babies, ah yes, of course, that's a good one. Well, do any of you play court? Anyone? I mean, if it's going to be anyone, it's going to be the children of the lawyer, right? Do you ever play court? Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's, a, there's a nod from the mother, but a shake from the kids that have played. It has been done. It has been done. Now, I can't remember where it was from, uh, but I remember seeing kids, I think it was on a show or something like that, pretending to do the oath in court. And they said... Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you, Bob? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's just yeah, way over for the children. Well, look, replace Bob with God, so help you, God, and what you get is what has been the common oath taken in a court of law for many centuries. Are Christians allowed to take it? Let's read what Jesus has to say in verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Again, as we saw last week, Jesus isn't saying something that uh, that nobody has ever said before. A Jewish historian, Josephus, had this to say about the Jewish sect known as the Essenes, who were around from a couple of centuries before Jesus. Now, funnily enough, in order to enter the community, you had to take an oath. But after that, this was the attitude that they had towards oath-taking. This is Josephus talking about them. Whatsoever they also say is firmer than an oath, but swearing is avoided by them. For they say that he who cannot be believed without swearing by God is already condemned. They and others in Jesus' day, they recognized that this practice of different oath formulas to avoid God's name was really just a sophisticated way of getting away with lying. And Jesus is exposing these false oaths and vows. Even though the scribes and the Pharisees were trying to avoid swearing by God's name, Jesus showed how such swearing is ridiculous because God owns all of the things that they are swearing by. Psalm 24.1. I can't remember what it says, but I read it this morning. Something about the Lord owning everything. Children, do you know uh, the song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands? Do you know that one? Anyone brave enough to sing it for me? No? He's got the whole world... In his hands, he's got the whole world. In his, yeah, he's got the whole world, right? That's the point of what Jesus is saying here. Heaven, earth, Jerusalem, your own body, all of them, everything belongs to God. Jesus is alluding to Isaiah 66, verse 1, and Psalm 48, 2, which say these three things specifically. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, and Mount Zion, also known as Jerusalem in the far north, the city of the great king. God owns all these places, and he has authority over them all. To swear on them is equivalent to swearing on his name. You might as well be. You're not dodging an oath in God's name by changing the thing that you swear by. That's what Jesus is saying. And he says that it is also true of your own body. I mean, that song anticipated it for us as well, didn't it? He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got you and me, sister, right? We also are part of his creation. We are his Have you ever used a labeler to mark what's yours? You know, we think that we can print out a label and and stick it on our bodies and say, property of J.R. del Rosario, this is mine. Jesus says, really? You can't even make one of the hairs of your head black or white. I have both black and white hairs on my head. And they were black for most of my life until I turned 18. And then some of them started turning white. And I can guarantee you that that wasn't because I wanted them to start turning white. That is the point. You don't even have full control over something as essentially a part of you as your own body. It's God's. So swearing by your own head, thinking that you can do that because it's yours, is again just as much swearing by God's name. Because your body really is not your property, but his. Not only does he sustain and keep it and age it, he knows it down to its finest details, even more than you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows how many cells are in your body. He knows the various parts of your body that need a little bit of a tune-up. He knows all the electrical signals in your brain that translate to thoughts and desires and feelings and actions. You see, these oaths and vows of the scribes and Pharisees that are based on things in creation, they are just sly ways of weaseling out, of telling the truth, or doing what they said they would. And Jesus confronts the so-called righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, your true colors are showing. This was never the point of oaths. And so for us today, we need to ask ourselves the question, what do we do if we have to testify in court? What do we do if we are made to swear on the Bible, for example? Is Jesus putting a blanket ban on all oaths, including in court? Well, you've seen it in court shows or movies, right? A person uh, takes the witness stand, and uh, a guard, apparently only in the shows, Josh tells me it's somebody else in actual court, they hold out a Bible, And they have to swear on it. Well, that doesn't seem right to us, does it? Because the Bible, after all, is also an object in God's creation. According to what Jesus says, that would be wrong. Well, it's worth noting that you actually don't have to swear on the Bible in court. And certainly not in Australia. Sometimes a Bible is held out. But the actual oath that is taken doesn't involve swearing on the Bible. You don't have to say, I swear on the Bible that I will tell the truth. Now, if that was a thing, if that actually was a thing, I think it's safe to say that as Christians we shouldn't do that and we must find a way around it. But because it isn't, we need not be concerned about that. That said, the oath itself is still a part of our justice system. The legislation of the Northern Territory says that a court oath can be religious or not. It would look like this. I swear by Almighty God, or a deity recognized by the person's religion. Lovely pluralistic statement there. And then the content of the oath. And then, so help me, God. Or as appropriate. Now, Josh tells me that the process has shifted so much now that there'll only be a religious component if a person asks for it. Otherwise, it's just a promise. I promise to tell the truth. So, church... Can we take that oath? Now, faithful Christians have disagreed over the years about whether Jesus is prohibiting all oaths in any circumstance or whether he is only talking about the kind that the Pharisees and scribes used. The Anabaptists of the 16th century, for example, they understood those instructions to mean that even in a court of law, they were not allowed to take an oath. Some... Faithful Christians today still hold that view. But even though they share part of our name, it's not what all Baptists have believed throughout history. So, for example, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession has a whole chapter dedicated to oaths which opens with this. A lawful oath is an element of religious worship in which a person swearing in truth, righteousness, and judgment solemnly calls God to witness what is sworn and to judge the one swearing according to the truth or falsity of it. Well, these guys were definitely not Anabaptists. They are saying a lawful oath is an element of religious worship. The 1647 Westminster Confession, the confession of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters over the road, is even stronger in its affirmation of taking oaths in court. It says, It is a sin to refuse an oath touching anything that is good and just being imposed by lawful authority. That's just like, how could so many brilliant Bible nerds get this wrong? Like, can't they read, you know? Can't they see that Jesus clearly says, do not take an oath at all? Now, we must let Scripture interpret Scripture. If something seems like it doesn't make sense on the surface, it's likely that other passages in the Bible will shed light on it. Now, to be clear, before I give you my thoughts on it, here's what we are trying to understand. As we've seen, Jesus is definitely saying that the types of oaths the Pharisees and scribes were taking were wrong. Swearing on heaven and earth, Jerusalem, your own head, doing so in order to get out of your promise, or so that you can bend the truth that misses the point of oaths in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus is absolutely getting at. The question is is he going further? Is he putting a complete ban on any oath or any vow for any reason on any occasion for all of his disciples? If you were to put me under oath and ask whether I think the Anabaptists or the London Baptists or, and the Prezies got it right, I would side with the Brits. There are three main reasons why I think it's okay for Christians to swear an oath under certain circumstances, especially when it comes to a court of law. I might even be persuaded to say that to not do so would be a sin, like the Westminster Confession, but I'm not there yet. Firstly... The Old Testament does not condemn oath-taking at all, but actually encourages it. As we saw earlier, as mentioned before, God himself takes oaths. He instructs his people to only take oaths in his name, and there are many examples of them. The problems came, as with Jesus, when oaths were not taken honestly or seriously, when people swore falsely, or when vows were broken. Notice how Jesus doesn't specifically condemn taking oaths in the Lord's name. Notice that in our passage. And that's how God instructed his people to take them. Secondly, it seems like Jesus himself, even though he doesn't initiate it, submits to the high priest when he puts him under oath before his crucifixion. Matthew 26, verses 63 to 64 And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. The word adjure there is putting Jesus under oath. Now, some say that Jesus is dodging the oath in his response, right? In order to be consistent with his total oath ban. That's possible, but that would be the weaker reading. If Jesus' rule was that a person should never take any oath, then you would expect a stronger response from him here. And thirdly and finally, the Apostle Paul himself, numerous times in his letters, calls God as his witness, which is very clearly a type of oath. One example is 2 Corinthians 1.23, I call God to witness against me. Now you have to say, Paul is either disobeying Jesus' total ban, or there's something that we're missing when we say, you cannot take any oaths. Notice what Paul is saying. There was a real concern that the Corinthians did not believe Paul's motives. You see, Paul had to cancel his trip. If you read the context of that chapter, he had to cancel his visit to them. And there were some in the Corinthian church who were just a little bit skeptical about whether he really did, you know, love them, whether his words really are reliable. And Paul calls this oath. He solemnly makes this oath to call God as his witness for his motives. For all these reasons, I believe the writers of the Second London and the Westminster Confession got it right. Which means if we ever have to testify in a court of law and are asked to make an oath before the Lord, then we are not being disobedient to God in doing so. Now, the truthfulness and trustworthiness of our character and our words should already speak for itself. No Christian denies that. That's something we'll dive into with our last verse. But I think it is entirely appropriate to do so in a court of law. It helps us to recognize that this is a solemn and appropriate time to remember that all the words we speak are before the Lord. And that is especially if you have skin in the game. Can you imagine the temptation of lying under oath or just bending the truth if it meant that you were going to get a bigger payout for your lawsuit? Swearing an oath in the sight of God reminds you that your truthfulness before Him is far more important than winning thousands or even millions of dollars. Another question arises though, are there other circumstances, right, where we can or should take oaths outside of a court scenario Are there other situations where we can take oaths or vows the way Paul did? Well, if there is a situation solemn and significant enough, then yes, I think so. For all the married people in the room, can you think of one example that you have taken at some point in your life? A marriage vow. A marriage vow is one such example. Certainly, one of the reasons many marriages today don't last is because those vows have not been rightly thought of as a vow before the Lord. And two important examples in the life of the church are also, I think, good examples of oaths and vows. They are baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are what some have called oath signs of the new covenant in Christ's blood. They call them oath signs because it means that by participating in them, the very sign itself of participating in baptism, of participating in the Lord's Supper, acts as an oath. We are solemnly standing before the Lord, declaring our turning away from sin and dependence on His grace through faith. When we are baptized and every time we take the supper, we are saying, Lord, this is true of me. It is true of us. Be our witness. And church, this is why we take the Lord's Supper so seriously. Paul warns the church in 1 Corinthians 11 not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That's why we must examine ourselves. That's why we must discern, 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 discern the body. Not just Christ's body, but the body of Christ, the members of the church with whom you have covenanted, with whom you have united to. When we take that sign together, that is the oath that we are making before the Lord. And this is also what sits behind our membership covenant. We don't say this together so that we can have mind control over each other or so that we can give people a bit of a you know, a kick to say, yeah, you've got to remember what you're doing. You're not doing this. You know, remember to do this. No. We recognize that the words that we are saying when we recite the membership covenant together are solemn promises to God and to one another, calling Him as a witness To our words. So, brothers and sisters, wherever we partake of these ordinances and recite our church covenant together, let us do so solemnly and before the Lord, prayerfully and in humble openness to the Holy Spirit's conviction as we consider our own lives and the commitments that we have made to God and to one another. That's what an oath is for. And whenever we make one on such solemn occasions, we should never do so lightly. Now, are there other occasions where we could or should take oaths or vows outside of those? None come to mind for me. What Oh, the police? Oh, yeah. yeah. But if you think there are, and if there are any others... Please speak with our elders and other godly brothers and sisters and proceed carefully. The main reason such circumstances are and should be rare for us as Christians is because the overall witness of our lives should be one of consistent honesty. Our words should be as trustworthy as the gravity that keeps us on the ground. That brings us to our final section being honest to God. There's a reason as Christians we don't pull the honest to God card. Because our words should have the reputation of truthfulness and trustworthiness. That's how Jesus wraps up this whole section. Verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This summarizes the entire passage. What matters is that the disciple of Christ only ever utters what is true. And Jesus doesn't mince words when he speaks of the seriousness of this. You notice that? Anything more comes from evil to make oaths or vows in an attempt to try and give credibility to our words when there is none, it comes straight from the pit of hell. And Jesus would be even clearer later on in Matthew 12, where he says, "'You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of of, of the heart of the mouth speaks.'" The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Our words come from the heart. Now, if you have a water cooler... That isn't see-through. Mia and I had this experience at uh, Matt's graduation the other night. How do you know if the water inside that water cooler is any good or not? Well, you open the tap and you see what comes out, right? And then you'll know what's on the inside. I don't think Jesus could be any clearer. Out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. This is why lies, even though they've become so acceptable in our day, are a far more serious sin than we care to acknowledge. It is not just that you have said something untrue. It is that you have not loved the God of truth enough to care that with every little slippery answer, with every white lie, with every dodged question to cover up something that you've done is to think so little of your heavenly father and his truth. It's to act more like a child of the father of lies. It's to set your heart not on your heavenly father, but on everything else. How easily do we fall prey to this temptation? How easily do we justify our truth bending, our slipperiness for our own skin? Last week I was at the pool shop and I bought two, two kilogram bags of a chemical. All right? Which? Kids, what's two plus two? Four. Four brings it to a total of four kilograms of chemical. The man serving me thought that one of them was just a one-kilogram bag, and so as he looked at them, he sort of mumbled out uh, three kilos, and then he charged me accordingly. Now, I, I didn't quite hear him, and they didn't have prices on their bags. Now, when he gave me the receipt, I checked to see what he actually did charge me, and I saw that he had indeed charged me for three kilos instead of four. Now it was tempting to just walk on out of the shop. After all, I didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't my mistake. I wasn't the one responsible for making sure that he charged me the right price. That's his responsibility. It would be within my rights to just take the extra kilo of bicarb and go. But I would have known. And God knew. It's in that moment, brothers and sisters, that we must ask ourselves and search our hearts. Do I love my God and his truth more than material benefits? Do I love him more than money? Now, after seeing the receipts, I turned around and said to the man, Well, actually, I've got four kilograms. And he looked at it, and he smiled and said, That's fine, and waved it away. Now, I didn't. Impose my honesty on him. He's within his rights to own the cost of his mistake if he wants to. I don't need to keep pestering him to tell him until he lets me pay the extra $5 or whatever it was. My conscience is clear on that outcome. Now, I tell you that story because even though it is minor, it matters to God. But I also tell it to you because even though I look like the righteous, obedient, truth loving disciple of Jesus here, that's not entirely true. You see, as I replayed this incident in my mind and I thought about when he said three kilograms, I'm pretty sure I heard him clearly enough to know that he definitely didn't say four kilograms. And very easily in that moment, I could have said, sorry, what did you say? And I get the feeling that there was a part of me that perhaps even anticipated the outcome, that perhaps after he'd already put the payment through, he just might let me keep it without covering the difference. And so, you know, I come back to him and tell him, which shows him that I'm being honest. He waves it away and I still get the discount from the mistake. Win-win, for me at least. I look like the honest guy and I get the money. And do I know this for sure? I don't know. My motives are a mixture of grace-fueled sanctification fighting sinful instincts. But I do know that it it exposes just how easily, how so very easily... I can let my love for God and his truth slip, even in the most trivial matters, perhaps even especially in the trivial matters. I know that it's just too easy for me to forget or to intentionally put out of my mind that God sees everything, including the desires of my heart, and I'm so short-sighted that I think that saving a few bucks is better than hating lies and loving truth. And this kind of honesty with our words shows up in more than just our words, doesn't it? After all, a vow is a promise before before God that you'll do something and that you will follow through on that. So in order for your vow to be meaningful, you must complete the action that you vowed. So even though we don't take vows, letting your yes be yes is as simple as following through on something that you say you will do. So kids, if mom or dad says... Can you please go and hang your towel up in the bathroom, just to take a random example? And you say, sure, mum," But then you keep playing with your toys. That is not letting your yes be yes or your no be no. Adults, these days nobody vows to be somewhere at a certain time But if you say you will be and you're not, then doesn't that reflect something about the trustworthiness of your words? I know things happen, especially with kids, and sometimes things outside our control stop us from following through, which is why we should be careful about our commitments and always submit them to the sovereignty of God. As a millennial, albeit on the older end of that bracket, I think my generation and the one coming after me greatly struggles with keeping our words honest. More often than not, when it comes to something that we've committed to beforehand, priority is instead given to how we're feeling in the moment or whether a better offer comes up or whether we can find some other reason to just wriggle out of something that, you know, we just we don't really want to do that. You know, I said I would, but I just I, I don't want to do that anymore. Do you trust God enough that He has good purposes for you in every circumstance? That even if something that you said you would do no longer seems like it's going to be good, no longer seems like it's going to be fun, that actually it's going to be really boring that God has good purposes for you in it, and that following through on what you committed matters far more than whether you'll be having a good time or not. Just because you think you're not going to have fun at something or whether it's not going to work out like you'd hoped, it may not be about you at all in the first place. I think this is one area where Christians can really be a city on a hill in our culture. I mean, why is it that the word flaky is just so commonly used to describe people in our society today? When it is the norm to bail on someone or something at just the slightest whiff of it being no good, when others jump ship because they suddenly decide that they've got other priorities, when self-interested partners take the money and run, our yes, yes, and our no, no will speak volumes in a cacophony of white lies, unreliable promises, and empty vows. Brothers and sisters, what it comes down to is whether we can trust our Savior, who is truth, to take care of the outcome when we stay true to our word, even if that means we ourselves can't see anything good from it. And it shows our desire, it shows our longing, our striving to be like Him, to be like the one who is truth, the one who never uttered a word of a lie, who revealed His Father's will perfectly, whose promises are, are sure. And it ought to cause us to be slow to speak. To think carefully before we pretend to be the expert on something. To not go into conversations with the top priority of winning the argument, but to go into conversations with the desire of discovering and learning and loving the truth. And it ought to cause us to humbly ask our brothers and sisters to speak honestly with us about where we falter in this. How often do you ask others to say, hey, speak honestly with me. Help me to love the Lord of truth. Our love for the truth should compel us to one another for help with getting the log out of our own eye. Deceptive, sly, slippery, liar, untrustworthy, flaky, unreliable, oath-breaker. These are words that we would never use to describe God. And they should never be applied to us. That's easier said than done, right? Once again, to apply this as a Pharisee would be to get all of us to stand up and to put our hands up and say, I will never take an oath by anything other than the Lord's name and I will always tell the truth. And in so doing, we would again miss the point. How do you go from having a heart that is willing to bend God's word and bend the truth for selfish gain to one that so loves the truth that it matters more to us than whatever lies can buy us? By the grace of God. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus came to reveal to us what we nat- that, we, that we naturally love lies more than truth. That we love self-preservation more than honesty before God. And that's why he calls all people everywhere to repentance. And when we turn away from our sins and we, tr- and we trust in him for salvation, Jesus yanks us out of the devil's family and brings us into his own. By turning and trusting in him, he adopts us to be sons of the most high God of the one who cannot lie. And in so doing, our hearts and our lives and our loves are transformed. We want to be like our Father. From the moment we turn from sin and trust in Jesus, His Spirit is at work sanctifying us, making us more like Christ, making us more holy. How? Well, as John 17, 17 says, When Jesus prays for his disciples, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. as we trust in Christ's finished work and as we look to Him to be more like Him, even the very thought of being just a smidge dishonest becomes a point at which we come back to Him again where we seek His forgiveness and where we plead with the Lord to let His love and His truth work its way deep into our bones. May we be like our Heavenly Father who is, as Numbers twenty-three nineteen says, not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind has he not has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it let's pray Father, sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. And don't stop your sanctifying work in us until we hate evil and love you, until we hate falsehood, hate lies, and love your truth. Father, don't stop until we love you so much That our hearts long to only ever speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us, God. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.